I've really been thinking about predicting stuff, materials, molecules, interactions, phenomena for a long time. And for majority of the time, my focus has been how do I get access to the biggest, baddest computer I can? First, it was large classical CPU-based systems, then GPUs came online and, and it became all about GPU-accelerated computing. And for me, that step into quantum computing was a very natural one. It made it possible to think about predictions that you just could not make using these even amazing large uh, GPU-based uh, supercomputers out there. That's Professor Praneha Narang assistant professor at the John A. Paulson School of Engineering at Harvard University. Like so many of our previous guests, her journey into the quantum field was not linear. <laughs> it was a winding road. Unlike most of our other guests, however, she entered the field when it had reached a more mature state. Her interest was sparked not only by the prospect of getting access to the biggest, baddest computer, as she put it, but also from realizing that for folks working in the physical sciences and in other areas of mathematical sciences, it was time to embrace the next tectonic shift in computing, to embrace machines capable of large-scale predictions. And of course, very early days, I remember when your first device from, from IBM was made available, and I kind of said, oh gosh, I gotta, I gotta do something on it. And I didn't tell anyone about it because I you know, said, well, let me, let me, you know, it's, it's, it's like when a new game is released and everyone wants to go play it first, but nobody wants to admit to everyone else they're going to be playing it first. That's kind of how I felt. I was like, okay, I'm going to set aside some time very discreetly, go look at what is, is possible here. And some of those first devices were a very long ways away from what we were actually still able to predict on even a very modest scale classical device. And my, my thinking was, yeah, but that's today. This is not going to be that way for the next uh, few years. And, and fast forward a few years, now we're actually talking about predicting things that are challenging, not impossible, but challenging to do on classical devices and getting to a point where you might be able to say that, oh, that makes no sense to do on a classical device. So that's my story of how I got here. Our conversation with Praneha marks perhaps the clearest, most exciting way to frame our journey from understanding systems in a classical framework to understanding and designing systems for a quantum framework. And I am thrilled to share it with you all. I'm Matt Hooper, and this is Forwards and Backwards, A History of Quantum Computing. Sebastian Hassinger, who leads academic partnerships for IBM Quantum, and uh, who you all know by now from past episodes, was reminded of a quote as he listened to Praneha's career origins. That obviously immediately brings to mind the uh, often repeated quote from Feynman, if you're going to simulate a, a natural system, you better do it it's, it's with a quantum computer, right? Um, from Endicott. Uh, were you aware of that, that sort of context or did you sort of um, come to it through material science and through uh, trying to simulate natural systems and just running into... Uh, those limitations of the classical approaches? So um, I was certainly familiar with it. I went to Caltech, so I feel like I have binge read, watched all things Feynman. And uh, um, that was uh, that was on my mind, though I think it wasn't the, the driving um, feature of, of, of what brought me here. It was really that desire to find the greatest, newest tool that allows me to do something that I already think is is important and is is solving a real problem. So 
that was kind of my uh, framework for, for getting here. Preneha's desire to find the greatest, newest tool that allows her to solve a real problem sent her flying headlong into a career where, despite her initial interests and expertise, the sort of science she is working on has changed. Also, just because clarity is always helpful, when Sebastian refers to HPC, he means high-performance computing, and when Preneha mentions NLP, she is talking about natural language processing. You're coming from a physics point of origin and a material science sort of perspective. Um, but in many ways, what you're doing now is, has a lot to, uh, more to do with computer science or information science, right? And in fact, I mean, you, you've also, uh, you're also a founder of a startup that looks a lot like a tech startup or, you know, that's very computer oriented. It's, uh, can you tell us a bit about Alira? Uh, yes. So since you brought it up, <laughs> of course I'm going to tell you about it. Um, so, you know, in, in my first couple of years here at Harvard, I had a few students who were working with me and a couple of postdocs who said, hey, um, you know, we've been getting involved in, in quantum computing. Uh, one of them came completely from a computer science and a theoretical, um, you know, algorithm standpoint and said, you know, we, we really want to think about how you can map these problems, how you can actually um, do noise-aware compilers, how you can do noise-aware algorithms across the entire stack. And this was back when people were just starting to talk about the concept of a stack. What, where would people intersect with various parts of the stack? And it just just happened. You know, people said, let's start a company. And um, like these things, they, they acquire a life of their own very rapidly. So, you know, a day later, there was an investor who was like, I heard you're going to start a company. I was like, you did? Because I'm not entirely sure I know that yet. Um, and, and very quickly, things came together. We got um, Harvard Accelerator Award. Then we got a, a few other things. We, we closed our seed round and Lyra was uh, off and away in, in, in 2019. And, and now we've gone from, you know, uh, a dozen people now going to about 50 plus wow. people by the end of the year. So, so we're really, you know, expanding. We've added a few different things to our, our portfolio. We've started to think about, you know, computing on single quantum devices is awesome, but if you had a set of devices that were connected, how do you think about distributed quantum computing? How do you think about, you know, so I gave you two uh, quantum devices, each 53 qubit, you put them together uh, somehow, how do you make that truly be a 106 qubit system, right? And, and how do you actually leverage that maximally rather than two tiny systems that are somehow connected. And, and that brings up interesting um, questions that, that people were not thinking about, we weren't thinking about when the company started, but um, are imperative as we get to scale. So it's been an interesting and journey. Is the, is the, the, the sort of CS angle um, something that you, uh, you started to get deeper into as you uh, got, I mean, it sounds like you're using HPC and classical computing resources the whole way. So it feels like, in a way, uh, like physics has always had a computer science sort of flavor to it for you. Is that accurate? Yeah, that's, I think, uh, a fairly good assessment. I've, uh, physicists don't think of themselves as computational scientists often, but um, I've, yeah, always uh, thought of myself as a computational physicist, a computational scientist. And it's, it's, uh, it's just been interesting to see, though, the level of interest from people in, in totally different areas of computer science, so areas of computer science 
Uh, so people, you know, working on uh, algorithms were always interested in quantum computers, but there were other people in, in um, NLP that were not previously talking to people in quantum computing. And now suddenly, you know, people are thinking about what is the natural way to come up with a programming language for quantum computers. Right. And that, that's been an interesting intersection to see. Um, there are areas of AI that are now intersecting with quantum computing. So I, I think it's, it's you know, computer science is, is very uh, large, complex, and deep discipline in itself. And I think uh, quantum computing has gone from being on the, the edge and, and the fringe to now starting to take a, a center stage. So I've actually recently heard from a, a card-carrying computer scientist, you know, asking me, can you tell me about the unitary couple cluster onsets and, and this whole quantum chemistry thing? I'm, I'm trying to understand it. And I thought to myself, wow, <laughs> this would not have happened five years ago if it wasn't for some of these devices right. actually becoming available. Yeah, it's funny. I mean, it, it does feel like uh, the physics own, the field of physics own self-perception is there's theorists and they work on blackboards and whiteboards <laughs> and then there's experimentalists and they build their own devices uh, from scratch. And it does seem like there is this sort of emergent third way, which is using these devices that vendors are building um, and software stack that various vendors are building on top of that to do, as you say, computational physics, right? So, so these devices becoming available and, and being not just available at, at the higher level of the stack, but available actually very close to, uh, I talked about pulse level control, you're talking about really, you know, it's, it's not all that different for, for me sitting there and programming the device directly. I think that's really changed the model for how theorists and experimentalists interact. I frequently now think of myself as running tiny experiments uh, from, from my uh, kitchen counter here on, on these very complex quantum devices. And, and that's very different from maybe about you know a decade ago where I would go talk to somebody who was building an actual quantum device in their lab and say, hey, would it be possible for us to sit down and talk about this idea I have? And you know they would stack rank it in, in some way and, and maybe it would percolate to the top. Maybe my idea would be you know, the bottom of, of the pile and, and never be realized. So, so that's, that's actually um, been quite interesting. And, and it's, I think in some ways changed how people who are building devices themselves think about their, their work. So you know, I'm, I'm sure you've had some experimentalists on and they've told you about uh, their experiences with uh, devices becoming available. But now I find, I find myself asking other experimentalists, Hey, do you have an API for this that, that I can uh, do something with? And, and, you know, it occurs to me that I would not have done that. Um, you know, even three years ago, I wouldn't have been like, hey, I want to play around with your device from a distance. Over the course of this series, we have listened to academics and industrialists, to theoreticians and experimentalists alike, guide us from a time where, as Praneha said, quantum computing was on the edge and the fringe, to a time of greater interest in accessibility. What did this mean, Sebastian and I wondered, for a new generation of students for whom quantum is not a far out concept, but rather a wave of computing already crashing upon our shores. You you teach um, quantum computing programming at a at an undergraduate level. Do you find um, that? I mean, certainly, there's we all have experienced growing interest in the field. Uh, the numbers of students who are sort of drawn to it and know about it and are is going up exponentially. It feels like um, uh, uh, is there. I guess is do you have a sense of like 
um, something like a quantum intuition starting to develop in in the younger students, sort of less presumption that it's something strange that I'll never understand and more accessibility or more approachability of the topic? That's an interesting question. You know, there is absolutely explosive interest. I, I get freshmen saying, I want to do something in quantum computing. And I, you know, uh, think to myself, wow, you, you know that already? Um, you know, you haven't even figured out what concentration, what major you want to uh, pursue. So people come in with, with this level of excitement that I just haven't seen before. Um, intuition, I think, is a, is a different one because, you know, people learn in, in early classes. So, so the course I teach, ES170, is, is, you know, really marketed broadly to everyone across the School of Engineering, Applied Science, which includes folks in computer science, as well as people in physics and chemistry. So the students who come in, I don't assume any quantum background. I don't assume they've taken quantum one, um, telling them that the Schrodinger equation is like the wave equation for electrons does nothing. So you, you really have to kind of, you know, assume very little about the, the physics there. But the upside is that, you know, people come in with background in encoding. They've most often taken, you know, a CS50, an introductory uh, programming course. They've taken some something that introduces them to uh, the theory of algorithms. So they, they have a little more background in that. So what we try and do is get people um, to, to develop some of that physical intuition to say, okay, well, we're going to go directly to direct notation and we're going to go completely to the discrete version of this. You know, let's ignore continuous for now. We're going to start uh, talking about using tools that allow you to, to, you know, manipulate matrices, think about what a certain operator is doing and develop intuition using a combination of code and math rather than relying on a background of, of many physics courses. And this is totally an experiment in, in teaching, by the way. This is, you know, uh, not, not something that people thought about and, and said, you know, we're going to teach quantum computing, quantum information science in this way. Though it turns out to be something that, that more of the field is, is embracing. There's recently an NSF and uh, OSTP-sponsored workshop on, on quantum engineering education that was exactly that. You know, how do we introduce people? Um, how much of this needs to be thought about as a separate major? Should we think about it as uh, something that's introduced at the master's level? Or, or, you know, where in the undergraduate programming can we uh, bring this in? And I think the, the answer is, is it's complicated, but it's also that it can't be after people have taken 20 physics courses because the, or, or chemistry courses, because that's not um, not that way we're, we're going to you know, be relying on people being uh, in their in their uh, PhD programs by the time we can you know, introduce them to this. Her point there about how this is totally an experiment in teaching is spot on. And as Sebastian observed, part of what makes this moment so exciting, there is still so much time to shape the future of the field, something we discussed in our more workforce focused conversations with Tina Brower Thomas and Margaret Martinosi in episode three. So much time to help an emerging workforce learn new skills. If you think about what the skills are that are needed for this new field, quantum computing, um, there's a huge variety, right? I mean, there's everything from people who can 
at the information science level, work on new algorithms or refinements of algorithms to uh, microwave and RF signal processing and generation to like, there's a huge variety that, that goes into actually making all this stuff. Exactly. And, you know, wh what does a, a quantum device engineer mean? And, you know, what, what is a, a, a quantum computer scientist? And how are they different from a, a quantum engineer? I think those, those things are still being worked out. My next question, of course, is like, we do have this new field that, that we're um, help, you know, collaborating on defining and pulling together. Um, do you think that we're doing a better job than traditionally physics and STEM has done with diversity and inclusion? Um, it's clearly not good enough, but do you see any signs for optimism or is there, I mean, it, sometimes I feel like, well, there's more awareness and that's hopefully that's going to make a difference, but hope doesn't feel like a strategy either, right? And I'm usually a very optimistic person, but this might be an area where I'm going to temper some of that optimism and say that, you know, um, at the moment, at least at the graduate program level and master's program level, we're not seeing too much of a difference from the, the you know, um, demographic we've seen in computer science and physics and in chemistry over the, the past um, past years. I think the increased awareness, the, the, um, the realization that a quantum workforce cannot look totally different from the, the workforce and the population, I think that's, that's helping. I think that's helping with uh, engaging partners at, at this stage rather than a few years down the road where, you know, uh, then you're correcting errors rather than starting out along a, a particular path. I think it's still a challenge. How do you get students to be excited about um, computer science, quantum computer science? I think that's that's a difficult one. I, I work with uh, women in computer science as well as the, the uh, WeCode um, chapter. So, you know, it's, it's a very, um, it's, it's focused on bringing more women into areas of computational science. And, and I think there, there are barriers that need to be lowered there. And then one of them is, you know, to, to reassure people that folks in quantum computing look like you and you're welcome here. And, and I think that message just has to be um, shared very early on, not, not just at when people are in college, but, you know, in high school and middle school, because that's when some of the people that, that we're losing and not even recruiting into the college programs are deciding that, you know, this is not for me, this, you know, I don't see somebody like me doing this long term, or um, I haven't received the kind of, of positive reinforcement for, for going down this path. So we're thinking about ways to, to engage um, you know, I, I personally particularly care a lot about bringing women into this field. And, and yeah, it's, it's, um, it's an iterative process. It's slower than I'd like um, and trying to figure out how to actually um, get more women in the field. The other aspect is how do we retain women in, in the field, um, you know, after they've gotten their, their master's, their PhD, or they finished their postdoc, how do you encourage them that this is this is where you want to go. And I've, I've you know, I've looked at, at the IBM team with some envy. I think you have a very, very diverse, incredibly well-represented team across um, different areas of, of quantum information. And, you know, you, you're 
clearly uh, able to, to make this possible. I think figuring out how to do that in academia, how to do that in, in a startup is, is something that, that we're still working on. Yeah, it does feel like in some ways academia and startups have that um, like culture of gatekeeping. It's not necessarily even down to an individual's like biases. It's the system itself, right? Like the, uh, right. the, the risk that an investor takes on a startup um, is based on uh, their developed intuition, which has a sample set, which happens to be not very diverse. <laughs> so there's right. a, uh, there's a negative reinforcement of that, of that bias. Um, and similarly in academia, it can be competitive for, you know, the, the, the whole uh, uh, hierarchy of, of, um, of advancement in, in academia can uh, reflect back on its own past too much and therefore continue on the same sort of biases that, that have happened in the past. Yeah, I think to, to some extent that's, um, that's changing, but not fast enough. Not fast enough. And, and I think that you know, investors are trying to be more cognizant of teams and, and backing founders who look different from just a pattern matching of what they've seen in the past three decades. Um, I think, you know, academia is, is also in its its uh, slightly slower ways trying to, to figure that out. Um, and we need to figure out how to get more women in this field to apply for, for some of those positions to actually stay in the fields and, and, you know, to, to make it attractive beyond, uh, beyond just those first few years where people are like, Oh, cool. I'm doing the thing. That's great. But you know, here's the long-term path that, that you will be welcome in regardless of what stage of your um, personal growth that, that you're at. Praneha is also among a group of leaders who are using NISC or noisy intermediate scale quantum technology, despite the noise. And this got Sebastian thinking. And I just wonder if that sort of maps back a little bit to the early work that's happening that you're a part of in harnessing these machines. You were saying like noise aware um, uh, compilation and uh, learning things from the, the, the nature of the errors. It sounds like in those scenarios, uh, the 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 shortcomings of the of the devices as computation are really actually you're turning them to your advantage in a way and learning stuff from the noise itself is that accurate yeah i think we're, we're trying hmm. to to turn that around and say okay maybe something about the noise characteristics is telling us something that about the physical system in in ways that's more than some of the parts um, it, of course, would be ideal if we had amazing fidelity and, and please don't get me wrong. So everyone who's building a device, shoot for the best fidelity, uh, you know, best quality qubits all the time. Uh, ignore, ignore the rest of what I'm about to say here. Um, but but we, we really are looking for, you know, how you can um, use some knowledge of the noise to know something about the uh, the molecular system that that you're you're simulating does that uh, allow you to maybe you know uh, think about certain conformational changes? You know what what would be it's it's really you know adopting a, a Zen attitude towards the the noise and and trying to to make the best of it. The other thing and just just kind of you know linking the the uh, teaching and and the the noise aspect here, which I know is is <laughs> interesting. I think that. I think teaching people about noise abstractly is very hard, but teaching them 
about noise when you're running a calculation in an actual device turns out to be really intuitive because people can see, aha, I started it, then I started to do this thing. Oh, I, I you know, prepared it to go here on the block sphere, but actually kind of went somewhere slightly different. And now I see it, you know, doing a, a, a different kind of uh, trajectory than, than I uh, had, had asked it to do. And that would not be easy to do without actually um, running that that experiment, even even from from a, a distance. So, and and noise, the least glamorous thing to learn about in uh, noise and decoherence is I feel like uh, super important, but also uh, probably when uh, half the class would normally zone out. So this is a good way to. I guess in part, I find it so fascinating because when I hear you talk about all these things, it it does feel like that collision somehow is going to be where that new model emerges from. Um, I I, I guess I'm sort of like, it's, it feels like it's more than just algorithms. It's more than just CS. It's some kind of new um, discipline somehow. I, I agree. I think that the, the approach that these are, you know, very controlled experiments that that theorists are, are running and and doing some some stuff with is uh, that's different from from how you think about you know I want a, a pristine device and everything's going to be great on it I know the outcome a priori so that's 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 not what's making these devices interesting right. I think we still have to see how this new field. Um, really, really benefits from that intersection and, and how you can actually, um, you know, so, so right now we're seeing ideas from physics going to computer science and, and vice versa, but, but seeing that, you know, uh, big bang moment and, and something uh, amazing come out of it is, uh, we're almost there. I feel like, I feel that this is going to be the year where, where that, that, um, really, occurs. you're going to, you're going to put it on this calendar year. I'm impressed. <laughs> yeah, we're, you know, seeing some signs of it. And, and, uh, I think there are already, you know, people claiming that, that they've, you know, been able to do, um, interesting physical problems on these devices that, um, are, are revealing totally new physics. So it's, right. it, it's happening. Right. Earlier in our conversation, around when Sebastian brought up the popular Richard Feynman quote about a quantum computer's ability to simulate a natural system, Praneha offered us some examples of simulations she's been studying. So one of the, the examples that, that you know, we've been looking at now are these uh, correlated systems that still talk to the environment. So you'd usually say, okay, so there's a system, there's the environment, it's, it's, the system is small, the, the environment, the bath is pretty big. And you would kind of separate those two things out. You'd say interactions are happening on two different time scales or two different energy scales. That's how you would think about it classically. Something that a, a quantum approach has allowed us to now do is say, well, how about we expand the system to include both the very correlated thing and then a little bit of what it's talking to as, as the bath. This, this whole field is called open quantum systems. We've been thinking about how you can actually simulate some of these open quantum systems directly on quantum devices. And, and this is an area where we're starting to see some surprises, some, some differences from what you would expect in you know, just a, a big classical simulation that you run. And, and you know, to, to just make this a little more concrete, uh, a good example of an open quantum system is light harvesting complexes. These are things that make photosynthesis happen, make leaves green, 
allow us to eat kale, make us healthy and happy, you know, in general, good stuff. Do you sort of foresee that as being, uh, you know, a, an incremental sort of walk towards being able to simulate photosynthesis, like as a, as a complete system? Yeah, I, I don't think it's, it's, you know, thinking about photosynthesis in its entirety is very complex. Um, so, you know, I think we're, we're, we're taking the first steps towards that. But the fact that we've got the active ingredient kind of figured out is, is uh, uh, an important first step. The same thing for, for looking at some of these other quantum body systems. You know, we're, we're starting to see, okay, you can set up a fuse site model. And, and that's already telling you something that you wouldn't easily know from, from running a um, calculation or a, a simulation on, on a, a you know, reasonable size cluster. So knowing the outcome, you could set up a, a pretty complex calculation and say, okay, yeah, this is the part of um, the, the phase diagram that we're in. So I think we'll start to see you know, things like, okay, people are mapping out parts of the phase diagram that we knew are, are of interest, but, but hadn't quite fully explored and, and looking at transitions. And there is now work from us and others and also classifying these different phase transitions and using approaches that are inherently using quantum algorithms to, to uh, make this possible. And I, I think that area is also going to you know, grow very rapidly as we start to see these uh, correlated states, these highly entangled states be, be created. It's, it's happening. People can do this already. Devices are good enough for that. Now you can start to see, okay, we're, we're now doing a, a walk through a, a phase diagram. So. Is there, when you think about um, the coming years, is there any sort of sort of wild ideas that, that come to mind, like either simulation of uh, materials or computational chemistry that will lead to exciting breakthroughs? Um, well, I think, you know, Everyone's been thinking about a particular virus a lot recently. That's true. And I think oh, which that, one's that? <laughs> um, I think simulating, uh, you know, really, really uh, complex problems like that mm. in, in biochemistry is, is going to be a, a, a big one. I think that's, you know, that was considered something that's going to be way out there. And yes, if you try and explicitly brute force a problem, it is still way out there. But that's, you know, uh, we didn't get very far in HPC by brute forcing the problem. Right. And we're, we're not going to be brute forcing the problem here right. either. So I think thinking about, you know, how those types of problems can be can be split up. Maybe maybe we'll know more about, um, you know, those those pathways uh, using quantum devices. And I, I think there are, there are a bunch of uh, companies engaged already in this uh, type of, of work. And some I know with uh, you guys at right. IBM thinking about you know, um, what is this active protein doing? Is this, uh, um, we've seen breakthroughs in, in uh, modeling such things using classical computers also in the last six months. So, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's not that unthinkable that those will soon start to use quantum devices. Near the end of every episode, I am reminded of how powerful collaboration is to the evolution of this field, how Disparate communities of experts come together in the name of advancing a science in an effort to bolster transparency and to educate generations to come. Maybe the one thing that, that um, I'd add is, is you know, how people are actually thinking about making their work in this field available. Mm. And it's been great that everything that we're doing in this field is from day zero, quite transparent. 
and and it's an area where we've seen some good partnerships between startups, industry, big industry partners, tiny industry partners. You know, it's just and and I think that is um, a hallmark of a, a field that thinks of itself as a field moving, you know, forward towards something rather than uh, a set of people who are you know competing towards a a single um, kind of prize. So. I think that's, uh, I, I look forward to seeing more of that in, in future. Um, the partnerships between industry and, and academics have been really, you know, important um, here as well. So um, there, there'll probably be more breakthroughs because of that than there would have been if we were, you know, all sitting in our uh, offices and in, in various uh uh, universities and thinking about it without those kinds of deep connections with industry. It's interesting is that, I mean, uh, you, you mentioned coronavirus uh, already that it felt like that was um, such a huge, open, collaborative, transparent, open science project over the last year that was massively accelerated by just the free flowing information. I mean, the thing was sequenced, the, the virus was sequenced in China uh, in mid-November or maybe late November, mid-December, sometime in that time frame. And within 11 days, it was already like that That data was everywhere in the world and people were already starting to run their own uh, analysis. And it was uh, incredible to watch. And I, I agree with you. I think that not only, I mean, it's, as you said, it's a sign that uh, there's a feeling that this is not a zero-sum game. It's just the pie is getting bigger and bigger. So why fight over the, the your little slice or whatever? That that coalescence here is is uh, uh, pretty remarkable, and it, it came together organically. So I I, uh, I hope it will grow organically as well. That's our show, folks. I would like to thank our guest Praneha Narang, co-creators Sebastian Hassinger and Abraham Asfa the whole IBM Quantum team for their support and cooperation, and of course, you, our listeners. I am your writer and host, Matt Hooper, and we will catch you all next time. Thanks, everyone.